My name is Josh Duell. Good to be here with you this morning. Um, if you've been with us for the last fast, past, pardon me, past several months, we've been working through a, a series on the spiritual gifts. We're going to be wrapping that up this morning. Hope you have been enjoying that. I've loved it, loved it. I, my, my hope is that it's helped um, every single one of us discern with a little bit more clarity how God has gifted us. It's really important to know that. But um, as you have discerned, I also pray it would have encouraged you, encouraged you to be on the lookout for opportunities to use this gift, to use the gifts that God has put in you uh, in order to build up, but also to build out his church, his, his body here in North Vancouver. Um, we mentioned a few weeks ago that in order for this body to function properly, we need every single part of the body to be functioning. This was chapter 12. Paul talked about this. We need every single gift operational. This is how the church corporately was meant to function. But if we're honest, I think that there's many that God's placed here that haven't been functioning. So this has meant that as a corporate body, we haven't been functioning as God's um, designed and, and wants us to. And so this series, I hope it's a catalytic moment. I hope it's a turning point for many here in the congregation where you begin to see the part you play in the grander whole. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 14 this morning, looking at five important elements that Paul lists um, in order for this this bigger picture, cohesive, wholeness, corporate gathering of the body to function as God designed. So these five points are up on the screen. There are five essentials to correct order and function within the church that we see as we wrap up chapter 14. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, we got lots of ground to cover. So I'm going to pray, grab your Bibles, open them up to chapter 14, and then we'll get going. Uh, Father, I thank you for a chance to open your word. Thank you that you're a God who communicates who, who has gifted each and every one of us, who's designed the body to, to require this. We just pray that you would be catalyzing and quickening these gifts in every single one of us and helping us as a body to cohesively function together. I pray against the ways the enemy would love to sow discord and disunity, division, and I pray as we open your word this morning that it would bind us together. I pray that your word, Holy Spirit, um, that the Holy Spirit would ignite it in our hearts and that we would see a clearer picture of you through it. It's for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So go ahead, grab your Bibles. We're going to begin in verse 26. We're going we're gonna to work through right to verse 40 this morning, but just we'll break it out in some chunks. So read with me verse 26. On. Paul says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that you may learn and all be encouraged. And the, the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
So this opens up, um, this really sets up our first point that in order for there to be um, cohesion, a unity in the body, there needs to be a desire for the whole body to be built up. We see this uh, verse 26, Paul opens up saying, what then brothers? What then? What he's doing here, um, he's done at many other points in his other writings as well. This first, first statement, what then? It's basically, he's made a series of points and now he's saying, what's the logical conclusion? To what should we conclude? He's, he's, he's just spent the last 69 verses unpacking the spiritual gifts and, and, and what they do. And now he's going, what then? In light of all of this, what then? How should they all function in the corporate context? The answer, together. They should function together. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all these things be done for building up. Now, there's three things I want us to notice just in this first verse. One, Paul assumes we're going to come together. He's just assuming when you come together, and we've talked about this at great length before, we serve a God who is triune in nature. He's a Trinitarian God, three in one. So to think that we could fully reflect a God who is three as an un, as a singular, is probably not just wrong. It's almost probably blasphemous. It cannot be done. We've, we've talked about this before. Christianity is not a solo sport. Reason number 146 to be in a community group. If you're not in one, you require community to be who God made you to be. But secondly, in this verse, Paul assumes that everyone has something to contribute. Everyone has something to contribute. But the third thing I want us to notice is he says that what is done corporately must build up the corporate whole. What's done by an individual must benefit the whole, and I love this point. I like this point because if you've been around different churches, you know that sometimes not everything that's done is for the benefit of the whole church. I've showed up at churches and seen interpretive dancing. Like, I, don't, I don't know what's happening. I've seen, um, went to a church one time, somebody got up on stage and like for 20 minutes just read a children's story to the kids. For 20 minutes, it didn't benefit the corporate whole. Or someone shows up and opens up a case and pulls out a tambourine and shares a song they've written. Somebody put the, take the lady's tambourine away. I, well, everyone does have something to share. Not everything should be shared. This is what Paul's saying. Church isn't supposed to feel like show and tell. Or the talking circle at your support group. Or... A spiritual talent show. It's just not supposed to. It's supposed to benefit, build up the whole body. Everyone has something to contribute. Paul's clear. Everyone has a gift, but it should benefit everyone. It should benefit everyone. And this is going to mean that there's some things that could be done that can't be done. There's some things that could be said that aren't to be said in the corporate context. There's a place for that. It's not diminishing those things, just not always the place for it. Um, the second point, though, the second thing that needs to exist in order for the proper functioning of the corporate body is a heart that will prefer others. Read on with me, verse 27. He says, if any speak in a tongue, 
there be two or at three most and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to, to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Again, that's sort of proving that first point. But um, we, we, we have talked about these verses as we've worked through the topic of prophecy and tongues. So I'm not going to really deep dive into these other than to point out the heart of what Paul is presenting in them. Our hearts, they need to be preferring others. It needs to be about building the rest of the body up. Not trying to dominate the conversation. Not trying to always have the mic. Not... not having to lead everything, not trying to be the focus, not doing all the talking. Just convicted myself there. Um, we, verse 30, he says, if a revelation's made to another, let the first be silent. We need to build one another up. We need to be about preferring others. Um, Paul proves this elsewhere as well in other letters he's written. They're up on the screen, Romans 12, 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Then in Philippians, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And then, of course, remember back 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It's really been the, kind of the life verse of this whole series. It said that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. Whatever is done in the church needs to be for the good of the whole body. It needs to, to prefer others. It needs to prefer others. Um, we need to look for opportunities to give preference, to call out gifts in others, give opportunity for others to develop their gifts. But there's a third thing. There's a third thing that Paul presents. And that's that in order for us to really maximally be what we are supposed to be as a body, we need to be corporately reflecting the divine order. So read with me. Verse 33, he says, For, so we do all these things, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Other translations, they might say um, something like, God is not a God of disorder, but of order, if you're reading a Bible different than the ESV. Our purpose as individuals is to glorify God, to image God forth. So each and every member of the body, this is our, our, what God made us for, to glorify him. And this word glorify, it really just means to reflect God in a way that makes him look great to others. So we're made to reflect God in a way that makes him look great to others. And, and the text says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So this is the God we're to be reflecting. Everything we do corporately needs to reflect a God who is not disordered, but ordered. 
The God of the Bible, he's the God who creates order out of disorder. He takes disorder and orders it. So Genesis, very first two verses of the Bible, these are up on the screen. It begins by saying, in the beginning. So the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We, we worked through these in depth in our Genesis series, um, but these four words, if you'll remember, formless, empty, darkness, waters, these were words that to uh, kind of an early people, to the ancient Near East, carried the idea of lack of purpose, lack of order, of chaos, then in verse 3, you'll remember, God comes in, he begins to speak to creation, ordering it, providing structure to it. And, it, and there's a whole chapter of him just going through, making different animals, God's speaking order, and after each thing that he made, what did he say? It's good. Order is good. Structure, it's good. It's good. The overthrow of disorder. It's good. This is why we search for purpose in our lives. We don't just want to meaninglessly wander because we know order, it's good. One author put it this way. What God desires is order. And what he expects is order. From the beginning, our job as the image bearers of God has been to continue the work of ordering this world in a manner that mirrors the perfection of God himself. So yesterday I was out in my, my yard working, fighting back disorder. Blackberries, hate, bla oh, I love my wife's blackberry pie, hate blackberry bushes themselves. They're a pain and they take over everything. They're like the picture of vegetable world of disorder. Fruit world, I guess, but they're terrible. We go in, we cut them back, we create order. You go to work, design a building, you're creating order. You go to work, whatever it is you're doing, what we're doing is creating order. Structuring, even spreadsheeting, creating order. Short church, the church that, or sorry, the job that God has given us is to partner with him in providing order to the world. The church, we're to be cultivating order, causing order, restoring the world to the order that God desires for it and designed for it, but that sin seeks to destroy and overturn. I got a diagram up on the screen. It's really fuzzy, um, so you don't need glasses. I just didn't send in the right size photo, so I'm sorry. What, what I wanna show you here is an overarching, this is kind of a, a diagram of how the whole of scripture works. This is called a chiastic diagram if you wanna get nerdy. But you'll see it begins with creation and that first arc on the diagram is showing how God set into place an order in the world. Then we know Genesis 3 came along and the fall happened. Satan came in and what he did as the great prince of disorder is call into question every single point of order that God made. He tried to undermine it. And, and that's exactly what happened. If you know the scriptures, disorder ensued. The garden that once flourished, they're now kicked out of. Once commanded to be fruitful and multiply, just one generation out, Cain's killing his brother. Disorder ensued. And really, this is the state of the whole world, is a state of disorder. But then, 
Jesus, the great prince of peace, the prince of order, he comes and what does he do? He kills, he defeats this disorder and he provides a hope for us. He saves us from the meaninglessness of disorder and he puts us on a trajectory of hope. And it says one day he's gonna come back on the far right upper corner of this and redeem all things. He's gonna make the heavens and the earth new and do away with all disorder. But in the meantime, we are on that final arc of this chiastic diagram where we reorder creation in order to reflect the order of creation that God made. Hopefully this makes sense. Hopefully this makes sense. This is why Paul says all things should be done decently and in order. It's what, it's what the church is about. It's what Jesus is about. This is the mission of the church. This is how we reflect the glory of God, by living and enjoying him within the order that he's established. Order and structure, it doesn't chase God away. It doesn't restrict him. It honors him. Order, order in the church honors God. So why is there a resistance towards it? Why do we internally and even sometimes corporately have a resistance towards order? Because there's an outside force that's trying to do away with it to stretch the lines that God has established, to, to massage the boundaries outward, to question their modern relevance. It's essentially the narrative of the entire Old Testament. God provided order. Satan, the prince of disorder, he shows up and he says, did God really say that? Is that really where you're going to find the most pleasure? Is that... Is that really what God said? It begins in the garden, but then it continues on through the whole of scripture. So if you read God setting his order in place in books like uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers, Leviticus, and so forth, um, God sets this in place. But then constantly, everywhere the people of God go, they begin to step out of this order. They begin to deviate out of it. And they f end up falling into a trap of dis disorder and distorting the order of God. And, and we've got to ask, why do they do this? Nine times out of ten, it's because they begin to try to fit in with the culture around them. They b begin to fit in with a different order. So you can go and read First and Second Kings, First uh, and Second Chronicles. The minor, the major prophets, this is what's going on over and over and over. Rather than being the order makers, God has created them to be the culture makers that they are to be. They get overtaken and influenced by the culture around them. So God would send prophets to call them back, say, hey, remember what I told you. Remember my order that was for your good and my glory. Come back into it. And they would rebel and they would run. So he'd send another prophet and another prophet. Eventually, what he did is he sent his son. He sent Jesus to come and win them back, not call them back, to come and win them back by defeating this prince of disorder. Now, this leads us right into our fourth point. And um, that is, is in order to be 
this corporate picture, this cohesive corporate whole that God desires us to be, we need to have a right relationship with the culture around us. And I want to read uh, the next three verses, but before I do, I just I want to I want to say three things. Okay, one, you're not gonna like it at first. You're not gonna like it at first. Secondly, I'm just the mailman. I'm I'm just the mailman. Thirdly, please give me an opportunity to try to explain it before you start throwing things or walking out. Just give me a minute, okay? So. Grab your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to read from 33 on. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. I... I could see some of that hit you. you. Go home and check your Fitbit. It's 1042. Your heart rate went up 30 beats per minute. Remember, I'm just the mailman. Just the mailman. You don't punch your mailman for bringing your tax bill. Um, don't hit me. If you do hit your tax man you sh- or your mailman, you shouldn't. Just let me try to explain this for a second, okay? There are three ways that people typically try to explain this text. Maybe you've heard them taught one of these three ways. Um, some have argued these verses weren't written by Paul at all. These were inserted by a later editor, and so they don't really hold sway to us. Uh, first, uh, there's no evidence to prove this. We have no manuscript copies that are missing this text. So I think as students of the scripture, I don't think we can go there. And, and I got to say, I find approaches like this a little, not just alarming, but frightening. Frightening. Because you come at the scripture with a bias and a pair of scissors. And you just go, oh, we can cut this one out. It doesn't fit in with my preconceived bias on what the scriptures say. The scriptures don't need a general editor, and you're not it. Secondly, you might have heard that these were Christian slogans of the time that Paul is speaking to. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, Paul actually um, talks about one of these slogans where he says, all things are beneficial, but not, or all things are permissible, not all things are beneficial, if you've ever heard that text. All things are permissible was a slogan in the Corinthian church. And so Paul employs it and he said, sure, all, you can do everything, but not everything is good. This also makes me a little cautious because what we don't see here is any proof that this is, in fact, what Paul's saying. We don't see any evidence that this was a slogan of the time, and so to come at it with some whiteout and a pen to insert some quotation marks, it kind of makes me cautious as well. Um, The third way, though, that you might have heard this taught on, equally unfortunate, and that these verses are absolute commands of silence on women. Hear me. I would argue this is a mishandling of the text. It's it's not understanding scripture in light of other scripture. So there's a whole science around how to interpret the Bible. It's it's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, if you 
ever want to go grab a book on it. It's a little nerdy too. But basically it says, when forming theology, it's important that we understand the verses in light of their context. Then from there, you need to understand the verses in light of the author's other writings. See how he talked about these things elsewhere. Thirdly, then, then in light of the whole scripture... So the light of the scripture of a whole. Those who interpret this verse to say women can't speak in church at all, um, who are in favor of sanctioning silence on our sisters, they, they haven't committed the error of removing this verse from the Bible. They've committed the error of removing the rest of the Bible from this verse. What Paul is not saying here is that women cannot speak in church. He's, just, he's not saying it. Ladies, this does not mean once you come in, it's American Sign Language or texting. That's not what he's saying. In chapter 11, Paul actually mentions women both praying and prophesying in the corporate gathering. So he's clearly not saying women can't speak in church. He's also not saying women are not gifted. Paul talks about Chloe, actually, in 1 Corinthians 1. Um, so at the beginning of this book, Chloe, a woman in Corinth, who it looks like has the church gathering in her house... And she's written Paul a letter letting him know about some of the disorder going on in the body that actually prompted this whole letter to the Corinthians. In, in Romans 16, Paul talks about a woman named Phoebe. And actually, and actually pardon me, I'll, I'll get there in just a second. Um, Acts 4, he also talks about the, the Philip's um, four daughters that prophesied. Women are gifted. Women can... Thirdly, also fill a role in the church, and now I'll talk about Phoebe in Romans 16. Phoebe was referred to as a deaconess there. So it would seem, and many would argue, that, that women can hold even a role within the church structure. Now, if women, hear me say this, if women aren't operational in the church, the church won't operate as it's supposed to be. Women aren't operational in the church. The church cannot function as it's meant to be. Because women have access to every spiritual gift that men do because they have access to the same, spirit, the same spirit that men do. Women have access to every spiritual gift that men do because women have access to the same Holy Spirit that men do. And if our sisters can't participate in the body if they can't even speak, we're going to be missing out on, well, statistically, 70% of the Christians being active within the body. So what is Paul saying? said what I don't think he is saying. Let me try to explain what I think he is saying. The church in Corinth, it was made up of two separate groups. One, dispersed Jewish believers who were living in the region. Secondly, Greco-Roman Corinthian natives. And I got to take you on a little bit of a history lesson because as we understand the, um, these two groups, I think that this verse is going to make a little bit more sense. So up on the screen, you're going to see a picture of the temple. Traditionally, um, Jews worshiped in the temple at Jerusalem. Um, as you came into the temple, you'll see the first place everyone would come into is the Gentiles' courtyard. This is where non-native um, Jewish converts or converts to Judaism, could worship. Beyond that, only Israelites could pass. The first place you would come there is the women's courtyard. Then you would proceed on further. Only the men could go into what was referred to as the Israelites' 
courtyard. And then lastly, into the inner courtyard where just the priests, just the priests could go forward and, and then only two at a time into the presence of God. Now, not all Jews lived close enough to worship at the temple, though. And so they would actually um, have met in some place called a synagogue. These were for Jews that were dispersed around the known world at that time. This word synagogue, it's actually a Greek word that just means gathering of people. So Jewish synagogues, they just simply didn't have enough space for all these courtyards. And so you can see here on the picture, um, the general congregation would have met below, but the women met up on the top floor. The women were separated from the men. So the Jews, they did away with the physical temple. They, because Jesus came and fulfilled the covenant and the priestly service and the sacrifices, the temple went away. And, and insert now the Christian assembly in the first century. I tried to find a picture of this, but I couldn't. So you just got to kind of imagine a bunch of people sitting around in robes on a dirt floor in a house. This is how Christians would have met. Now, it's, it's men and women together. Men and women together. It's, some would argue men were on one side, women were on the other to keep them from distraction and in order to keep their minds wholly dedicated to God. But men and women were together. So when Paul says women should keep silent, and if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, one of the reasons he said this could be in order to provide order in the church service. Because now you have these women who weren't granted the privilege of theological education, of hearing the scriptures read every week like the men were in, within Judaism, and they would have maybe come with a lot of questions. He's saying, this isn't the place for that. This isn't the place for that. I've, I was preaching one time at another church, and someone right about where Mike DeVolt is, like, stood up and started asking questions. It threw me off a little. It, it's a little, you're like, this is, sorry, this is an oration. I'm actually just going to talk for a while, but let's meet and talk after. Because that's, it would just turn into disorder if this was all question and answer period, similar to what I think could be going on within the Jewish context. Jesus, to the, the, the women in Judaism, was the great emancipator. He granted radical freedom. To Jewish ears, Jesus was a radical. But the Jews weren't the only Christians at Corinth. There was a whole other group, those who converted um, from the Greco-Roman religions kind of, other, of of the area. And understanding their context is going to be equally important. So Corinth was known for two things. It was known for being a world trade center. It was really like a major trade route. And then it was also known for its many female deities that they worshipped. So within Corinth, there was Venus, the, the goddess of love. There was Persephone, the daughter of Zeus. And then there was a massive temple to Aphrodite, or Aphrodite, uh, who was the city protector of Corinth. So this was sort of the city god that everyone prayed to. Massive temple, and in it, women served the role as priestesses. Women did all of the religious administration in this temple. In addition to them, it's said that there were upwards of a thousand women who served as temple prostitutes. 
And so locals or visiting sailors, which maybe led to its attractiveness as an international port, could show up and for a donation to the god or goddess, could sleep with these temple prostitutes. So as locals from within this context converted to Christianity, it only makes sense that some of the cultural norms would have still lingered on in their minds, maybe even carried over into their understanding of how a religious gathering and a religious service was to function. So when Paul speaks in verses 33 to 35, understood through this Greco-Roman context, what he's likely doing is providing instruction for women, firstly, who, like the Jewish women, don't know a lot of everything that's going on, didn't have access to that theological education that some of the men did. But he's also probably providing some instruction around how males and females are to function in the church. He says, as in all the saints, or all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. In Christianity, it functioned very differently than the society and the religions at large. But Paul didn't modify Christianity to accommodate these existing cultures, these thoughts, these religious practices. Instead, in verse 33, he talks about the practice of the church around the world. He says, what I'm saying is the practice of all the churches everywhere. The reason Paul didn't adapt to the culture is because he wants the church and the individuals who make it up to function as God designed them to. We've talked about how the church func functions and operates optimally when every gift is functioning in its right place and as God designed. The same is true for men and women when we operate correctly as God has designed. So I've said earlier, men and women are equal in worth and value. Women and men have equal access to every spiritual gift because they have the same access to the same spirit. Christianity is pro-women. Jesus is pro-women. Jesus is pro-women because he made women. Because Jesus made both male and females, he also gets to define how they operate. Men and women, according to the Bible, are equal in worth and value, and that's good news but we're different in role and function. And that's good news as well. We're designed to operate differently. If you've been around men or women before, you know this is true. Right down to the DNA level, we're different. That's good, we're different by design. When we properly understand this, it doesn't suppress. It actually liberates. It frees both men and women. Because living outside of God's intended design and not only robs us of effectiveness, it robs us of joy. It's only when we're operating as God has designed us to function that we will maximally reflect him as image bearers. We're operating as God has designed. It's where we're going to find our maximum joy. The Bible, it speaks to a few different ways um, that men and women are to live out their uniqueness 
um, as within their lives. And this is a really big egg to crack, just so you know. I don't have time to fry the whole thing this morning. But there's basically three categories. What, what does it look like to be a man and woman as an individual? What does it look like to be a man and women uniquely ordered by God within marriage, but then also the church? Really big egg to fry. I'll point you to a text, Ephesians 5, to 32. Paul writes on the ordained roles of men and women within marriage. He says, men and women, we have different roles within marriage in order to reflect the goodness and character of God. He actually says that the way men and women conduct themselves in marriage is a picture of how the church in Christ function. It's a heavenly mirror. Now, we have marriage refresh class this morning. Dale walks through some of that there. Um, James, as well, if you want to reach out and email him, he can point you back to some sermons that will deal with this um, in greater detail than I have the time to be able to do so this morning. But the long and short of it is that marriage is meant to reflect God, and that men and women have different roles within the context of marriage in order to be able to reflect the ideals and the order of God rather than the order of culture around us. But the Bible speaks also to the roles in the order of men and women within the church, and this this has some context to understanding what Paul has said in Corinthians, I believe. So in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, there's bigger sections of scripture. You can go read those on your own time. But what we see there is Paul laying down um, qualifications for the leaders, the elders, and the teachers in the church. And he says that there are some positions within the church that are reserved just for men. Not because they have more worth or value or gift or anything else. Not even... For no other reason than this is, this is how God has designed men and women to function. This is how he's designed men and women to, to, to operate within the church. So the long and short of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is that elders are to oversee the church and principally do the preaching and teaching, and that's a role reserved for men. That's what the Bible says. Again, I'm just a male man. Not because men are more gifted, capable, not because they're better leaders, not because they think better, not because they have higher IQs, none of that, simply because this is how God designed us to. So when Paul says, women must remain silent in church, and it's shameful for a woman to speak, perhaps it's in reference to some of the questions that women from both the Jewish background and the Greco-Roman background would have been coming with, but maybe there were some Corinthian women who had been a part of these other religions who had been used to leading, who were trying to take over, who were trying to lead, who were trying to be part of the instruction, perhaps. Maybe they were trying to take on a role reserved just for the men, as God has said. Now, they, this is tough stuff. I get that. Hopefully, this is making a little bit more sense. I'm just going to acknowledge, though, there's many who don't like this. There's denominations that have formed because of this. There's been changes that have taken place in, within church denominations in order to, 
to do away with these texts. There's people who've ceased to believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God so that they don't have to deal with this. To many years, this sounds sexist. It sounds patriarchal. It sounds oppressive. So we need to ask the question, how does this glorify God? How is God glorified by this? And the answer is, is because it reflects him. So God created us, we've said this many times, as image bearers. And the God that we are supposed to reflect is a triune God. I said that at the beginning. He's three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God with a unified essence who has eternally existed as three persons. That's the position of the Christian church. Some have described it this way. Maybe it's helpful. One what and three who's. God is one what and three who's. One God with a unified essence that's eternally existed in three persons. Throughout the scriptures, God has revealed himself as a God who has eternally existed as a tri-unity. And as you read, something else becomes very clear. That while the members of the Trinity are equal in worth and value, they're all God. They're different in role and function. Just like men and women. Jesus filled a different role within God's narrative of humanity and God's rescue of humanity than the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit plays a different role than God the Father, yet they're all still God. What we're meant to be reflecting as men and women is the ordered equality that exists within God. When we understand this, it isn't a belittling thing. It's not an oppressive thing. It's an honor we get to reflect the ordered equality of God. It doesn't make men less than women or men more than women or women more than men or women less than men. It makes us equal but different. It's an honor to serve God. We're made in the image of God. God has expressed himself as three in one, eternally existing as equal yet different in role and function and that's what we get to do. Short church, if, if we're going to live this out in real time, if we're going to be serious about corporately reflecting the divine order, about having a right relationship with the culture around us, we need to have an attitude of submission to the scriptures. Now, just as then, there's a push to live outside of the order that God has imparted on creation. There's a tendency to want to just reinterpret this Bible to get rid of texts like this. To read the Bible with a pair of scissors or some whiteout. Just don't do it. The Bible tells us there's a good God who loves us and who means our, for our welfare. Don't do it. People push back and they say, well, who's God to tell me what to do? That's antiquated thinking. We know better than that now. Surely God didn't really mean that. I just point out, that's the same line of questioning in the same tone that the serpent used in the garden. These aren't new thoughts. This is Satan's primary tactic, is to attack God's ordered world. If we're going to corporately and individually live out the 
function that God has for us, we're going to have to approach the Bible for what it is, as God's word. We're going to have to try to live in submission to it with every nook and cranny of our lives to live out this order it describes. And that's for God's glorification, but it's also for our joy. To those then and now who, who question the modern validity of what Paul is saying, um, this is the same thing that went on then. And Paul responded this way. Verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it's reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet, meaning someone who can write more scripture, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Did you write the Bible? That's what Paul says. Did you write the Bible? You want to change it? To those who want to change the, the function and operation around for the church to really just focus on their one gifting, Paul says, did you write the Bible? To those who want to say there's no role in the church for women, Paul says, did you write the Bible? To those like the Greco-Roman converts in Corinth who say, man, there's no role a woman in the church can't have, Paul says, did you write the Bible? To those who say some of the gifts have ceased, Paul says, did you write the Bible? He concludes this section asking this question, and it's rhetorical. No, you did not. But some have been trying. Some have been editing, have been rewriting, have been coming at the scripture with whiteout, have been blacking out and redacting sections and never talking about them. And we've been robbing ourselves of maximally glorifying God as he designed. I hope we see that. As a church, we need to maintain a posture that the scripture and every dot and tittle, every line, every crossed T, every dotted I is from God for our good and his glory. If we do away with this, you're also doing away with the God who sent his son. The God who came into our disorder. Remember that disorder that you experienced prior to knowing Christ. Remember the order that he brought. This is the God of this order. To reject some of his ordering is to reject the Savior who came for you. Now, this might feel like a really weird way to end a series on the spiritual gifts. Um, I'm just preaching the text. This is where Paul went. I actually think this is very fitting. It's very fitting. Many of us probably came into this series a little fearful of, hey, what would it look like for the whole church to actually be functioning in these gifts, thinking it would be disordered? Paul concludes, Paul concludes this by describing order, an order that might challenge some, might pull some outside of their comfort zone, might, might have to pull some into some boundaries that maybe make them feel a little uncomfortable right now, I pray that you see that they would glorify God. That our job is to reflect order into the world, to, to take disorder and to order it in order to reflect God into the world. This is our corporate goal. This is why God has gifted each one of us uniquely, to tell the tale that it takes m many of us to reflect this dynamic great God into the world.
I want to conclude um, just by thanking you all for your willingness to enter a series such as this. And again, I said at the beginning, our prayer has been that you will begin to recognize the gifts that God has put in you and then seek and look and be on the hunt really here on Sundays, but every day to look for opportunities to utilize these for the glory of God. We want this church to maximally image forth Jesus Christ onto the North Shore and order is a good thing. Order's a good thing.